Our gracious God and loving Heavenly Father, we pray that you would illuminate our hearts and our minds and fire our wills by your Holy Spirit. That we can be all that you've called us to be. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Have you ever begun something one way, but then as you've gotten into it, thought, actually, that's not the way to continue. I'm going to continue down a different path, in a different form. When I was young and foolish, I was heavily into rock climbing. Uh, rock climbing is a genuinely interesting sport. It's uh, full of thrills and spills. Uh, you've got an insect on a rock, a uh, hundred metre clip faces, and you clamber your way at the top. It's quite superb. There's just a rope between you and death. Literally, you hold the lives of others in your hands. Uh, it's not like abseiling. Abseiling is not a sport. Abseiling is just a means of transportation. Uh, abseiling is for wimps. Abseiling is what gets you to or from a decent rock climb. Uh, climbing is the sport. Anyone into climbing here? Does anyone know what I'm talking about? I'll speak freely then. I remember the first time I ever did it was at a not particularly large rock face. And I started climbing the correct way with my face to the wall. So here was the rock, and I'm climbing up like this, and up I go. I got into some trouble, and somehow, I can't remember how I managed it, but uh, somehow I managed to turn myself around. So instead of being like this, I thought I'd go like this. <laughs> now, rock climbing is hard enough at the best of times, but when you can't actually see what you're doing and you're facing the wrong way, it's ridiculous. And so what did I do? I froze. For two hours, I sat stuck on a rock, like this. This is my first time, wondering what I should do. There were people above me and people below me shouting out helpful things like, turn around you idiot. <laughs> two hours. I tried to finish in a way that was different from the way that I started, and it wasn't working. I should have just kept going the same way that I started. That's been that special relationship. You know those special relationships? And you begin full of enthusiasm and energy and vigour, full of interest in the other person. But as you get into it, it goes a little bit sour. And you decide, really, the best way to go forward is to spend less time together. To do different things in different places. You finish in a way that's different from the way you begin. Well, Paul's wonderful little letter to the Colossians is written to a group of Christians who have been tempted to continue to go on in the Christian life in a way that's different from the way that they began the Christian life. They began the Christian life growing up. They received Christ Jesus the Lord as their Lord. That's what it is to be a Christian, is to receive Christ Jesus the Lord as your Lord, and their lives began to take a Christ-like shape. And all was going well. However, having gotten started up the rock, they're in danger of turning about and continuing in the wrong stance altogether. And so the theme of this letter is really Paul's explicit appeal. He's pleading with them. Chapter 2, verse 6. If you have your Bibles, now's a good time to take it out. If you don't have your Bible, then Ryan Smart will personally pay for a Bible. That's how he became the greatest president. <laughs> he got Bibles out by the hundreds. Uh, get your Bible. You need your Bible. You need chapter 2, verse 6 of Colossians. As you therefore have received Christ Jesus the Lord... Continue to live your lives in Him, rooted and built up in Him, established in the faith, just as you were taught, abounding in thanksgiving. As you receive Christ Jesus the Lord, continue to live your lives in Him, or literally, continue to walk in Him. If there's one point that Paul wants us to get through this letter, 
the Zohar wanted for the original readers to get through this letter is that the way to progress in the Christian life is not to move on from Christ to something else, some supposedly deeper, richer, more exciting, more interesting, truly fascinating, mature experience. It's not to move on from Christ, it's to grow more into Christ. And Paul piles on the metaphors to make sure that you get the picture, mixing and mashing his metaphors appallingly. I went to a Bucks night where we um, had to give uh, little speeches as the friends of the bar, and we had to give speeches to him, advising him about marriage. The theme of the speeches was life as mixed metaphor. A truly uh, exquisite experience. There were some genuinely smart people there, uh, and me. And um, <laughs> uh, one guy gave a speech, uh, which still has the best mixed metaphor I've ever heard, which was he talked about how we would sail through life's rich tapestry. <laughs> anyway, Paul was just a bad progress and depth in the Christian life, he says, it's, is walking, walk in Christ by being rooted as one like a tree. Being rooted, having deep roots sent down deep into the earth, strong sap producing roots. One of the images that we've chosen for uh, the church where I serve at Ashfield is like one of those massive trees. You know, with the roots that are so big they come out of the ground and almost sort of join the trunk. It's a great image of Christian maturity. That's what it is to progress as a Christian, is to sink deeper and deeper roots down into Christ. And if you can't kind of get how you're supposed to walk like a tree, well, it gets worse. He says, well, it's being built up in Christ. It's like being a fantastic building, strong, clear. Uh, you may know, you know, these great buildings, a great hall, Stones enormously fat and thick, just bam, solidly built on Christ. Or, or he changes the metaphor again, like being established in the faith. That's what it is to be mature. That's how to continue in the Christian life, being established like a legal document. The metaphor is here. Duly signed, sealed, delivered. No questions, no doubt. Or in overflowing, abounding, like a jug overflowing with water or wine. Paul says, as you've received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in Him. Don't move on to something else. Dig deeper into Christ. Now for the Colossians, the thing that was put to them as the way to progress in the Christian life was to shift to the Jewish law. You know, the law, 613 commandments and prohibitions, all the different elements of life to shift to the Jewish law. I suspect that that hardly represents a serious threat to you. You haven't been tempted recently. There's the way of growing Christ. Become a Jew. That's not what you thought, I suspect. We're just not at that sort of time in church history. But it is worth asking the question, what might it be? What might it be that would tempt you to think that the way of progressing the Christian life was to move beyond Christ not, not deeply rooted and built up in him, but rather to move on to something else, some next step. That's a deeper form of spiritual experience. We're a culture that craves spiritual extravagance, I think. I think it's because we live such flat and materialistic lives that every now and again we flip out as a culture and think, no, we want desperately something that takes beyond the kind of flat materialism that dominates our horizons. Something a little more interesting than the daily stock market report on the news. 
some years ago there was a phrase that swept across a number of churches called the Toronto Blessing. I'm not sure if you heard that. It was, as far as I'm concerned, an absurd spiritual phenomenon. People found themselves overcome in spiritual experience and either laughed uncontrollably or made animal sounds while sort of hopping around on the ground. This was regarded as the way forward in the Christian life for some people. Yes, there's all that Christ stuff, sure, faith and, and hope and love. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But, but what you've got to get really into, the thing that really pushes you forward in the Christian sounding like a hit, overcome. Well, the Apostle says, as you received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in him. And after the usual introductions to his letter, the first thing he does is to remind the Colossians of exactly how they did receive Christ Jesus the Lord. And therefore, of course, how to continue in him. Well, Colossians chapter 1, verse 1, Paul an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God and Timothy our brother to the saints and faithful brothers and sisters in Christ in Colossae. Grace to you and peace from God our Father. In our prayers for you we always thank God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Notice three quick things about this introduction. Paul writes, he says of himself, as an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God. He is in doubt neither about who has commissioned him nor, therefore, the authority with which he writes. Later he says that he's a servant of the church according to the commission of God to make the word of God fully known. What the Apostle Paul gives in this letter is not useful advice, it's not interesting reflections. It's the word of God. Second, notice the description of the Colossians. Literally, in the original, there's a nice little balancing phrase here. It's, to those in Colossae, saints and faithful brethren, in Christ. And and the in Colossi and in Christ just nicely balance each other. Christians have a dual identity, you see. On the one hand, they're in Colossi, these addressees. That is their most immediate point of identification. But more deeply, they are in Christ. And it's both in Colossi and in Christ. You are saints in Sydney University and in Christ, and it's important to let neither of those two poles totally obliterate the other. Don't be so much embedded in Sydney University that it's actually impossible that you're in Christ. Don't be so much embedded in Christ, if you like, that you actually forget that you're part of Sydney University, called by God to serve him there. Finally, notice who God is here. We have what is virtually a new definition for God Quite specifically, he is the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. The Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, each of those words, we tend to let the words Lord Jesus Christ just slip off our lips. You know, Lord Mount Batten or something like that. Um, each of the words is full of meaning. Jesus is, is the human being, Jesus, who was crucified outside the walls of Jerusalem. If you had a video camera there, you could have recorded it. It was a straight historical fact. But that crucified one has been raised by his father as the Messiah, that is, the anointed one, the Christos, that's just the Greek version of the Hebrew word Meshua, Messiah, Christos. It means literally anointed. Someone tipped a bottle of oil on your head. Um, that's not a common thing these days. We normally just give people a handshake and say, well done, congratulations, or perhaps give them a, a commission of let with a letter. Being anointed meant you were 
God's special agent to perform his special work. That's what it is to be the Messiah. But notice this is not just an ordinary Messiah. There are lots of Messiahs in that sense, you see. Uh, all the kings of Israel were anointed. Uh, even the Persian Cyrus was called the Messiah uh, in Isaiah 42. Now this Messiah, Jesus, is no less than the Lord, sharing God's own name because he shares God's own identity, God the Son. Yahweh is the name of God and now this Yahweh is revealing himself in his Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. The point is, that is who God is. He is the Father of this one. This one. And any other God, other than the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, whether that be Allah or Krishna or whoever, simply is not God. An idol, a false God. Paul, the Colossians, God. These are the players in this letter. And with that, Paul reminds them of how they received Christ Jesus the Lord. He starts with an overview, the broad brush strokes of the Christian life. Uh, later on in chapters 3 and 4, he's going to fill in the detail of the Christian life. What it is to live with Christ Jesus as your Lord, how it affects your family life, for example, how it affects your work life, how it affects your relationships, how it impacts on your emotional life. He'll say all of that. There's beautiful detail. I'm very much looking forward to getting to Colossians 3 and 4. But for now... He tells them that he's heard of their life in Christ and the broad outlines of that. He lets them know his prayers for them, his prayers of thanks and his prayers for their progress. Just, by the way, that's a great thing to do, isn't it? To let another Christian brother or sister know of your prayers for them. I suggest that between now and next Thursday, you actually do that. Let someone know of your prayers or tell them how you've been praying for them, what you've been thanking them, uh, God for them, and how you've been praying for them. Make sure you do it. Uh, don't lie. Uh, that might be encouraging to them, but bad for your own soul. So do pray. And then let someone know what it is that you've been praying for them. Very encouraging thing. So they should hear that. Well, listen to how the Apostle prays. Verse 4. For we have heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and of the love that you have for all the saints, because of a hope laid up for you in heaven. You've heard of this hope before in the word of truth, the gospel that has come to you. Just as it is bearing fruit and growing in the whole world, so it has been bearing fruit among yourselves from the day you heard it and truly comprehended the grace of God. This you learned from Epaphras, our beloved fellow servant. He's a faithful minister of Christ on your behalf and he has made known to us your love in the Spirit. Here's what it is to receive Christ Jesus the Lord. It takes this form. It's for your life to be soaked with faith in Jesus Christ and love for all the saints because of the hope that is laid up for you in heaven. Faith is directed upwards towards Jesus Christ. Love is directed outward towards other people. Hope is directed forwards to the future that God has promised. And we'll look at each of those briefly in turn. Firstly then, Paul thanks God for their faith, which in the Bible is both more than and less than what people usually think. Faith in the Bible is more than what people usually think because I think if you ask your average SRC candidate 
what faith was. They might say to you, have you voted for me yet? Is it still on today? What a joy. (laughs) But if they had any uh, time uh, left for you, they might say, well, faith, believing that God exists. Believing that God exists. For the Bible, that's not faith at all. Believing that God exists is just common sense. 99.9 something percent of people throughout the history of the world and across the world believe that God exists, and it's just common sense. It's only us incredibly intelligent, modern people that have managed to invent something as dumb as atheism. Now, faith is not believing that God exists. One of the Bible writers says even the devil believes that God exists and shudders. If you believe that God exists, but that's really all you have to do with him, then you don't have faith. What you have is just the, the outline of faith, just a skin, but not a substance. Now, faith is much more than what people sometimes think it is, believing that God exists. But on the other hand, faith can be less than what people think it is. Sometimes people say to me, I don't know if they've said it to you, you might have had this experience, but they say, I just don't have your faith. I wish I could, really. I wish it would be great with this. We have your faith. I just can't have your faith. You have this magical ability to have faith. Your head's way up there in the clouds and you can do that sort of thing. <laughs> Whereas for me, I'm just a normal person with my feet on the ground and I can't muster what you have, which is faith. Well, that's nonsense too. It's nonsense because we all have faith. Every person has faith. Our faith, properly understood, is all about trust. It's trusting another person. And unless you have nothing to do with other people at all, we do trust in people all the time. We have faith. Everyone has faith. It's not some special ability. The issue is not whether you have faith or not. The issue is, in whom do you have faith? Where do you put that trust? And with Jesus, faith is entrusting to him the whole of your life for the whole of your life. Putting him at the centre. Putting him in the driving seat. A few years ago I had an operation and uh, I had a general anaesthetic. It wasn't an especially large operation, but quite a general. Uh, you might have seen how they do a general anaesthetic. If you not have one itself, they give you a catheter. That's a little tube that they stick in your blood vein. And then they hook you up to a bag and they stick the anaesthetic in the bag. The bag goes down the tube into your blood and off you go to La La Land. <laughs> uh, I'm all primed up. I'm ready to go. We get wheeled down to the bottom. Uh, the guy says, I'm going to put the anaesthetic in the bag now. You count down from 10. I think that's not so hard. I've been doing that for a while. 10, 9, 8. I get to 7 and I realise I, I'm about to die. Actually. <laughs> I can't breathe. I'm paralysed. The anaesthetic has paralysed me. So I, I'm lying there. My eyes are open. I'm looking up at the doctor and he's looking down at me with this kind of goofy grin. <laughs> and I'm dying. I try to shout out to him, you killed me, you idiot. But I can't because I'm paralysed, so I can't say anything. I'm trying to move my hands and do something. I'm paralysed and I'm going, six, five, four, I'm out of here. Anyway, I didn't, I didn't get past four. I got to three. And then I woke up. I thought I was going to die and I thought this idiot doctor had killed me. That's called unfaith. <laughs> I had entrusted my life to him literally. But I believed that he was not competent for the job. That I put my life in his hands and he had injected too much of that beautiful stuff. And I was on my way out. I was wrong. I should have had faith, shouldn't I? I should have trusted him. 
I lived to tell a tale. Well, faith is just trust, you see. It is trusting that Jesus is more qualified than you are to run your life. Just like that doctor was more qualified than I was to run the anaesthetic, I was very keen that I'd get just the right amount, enough so that I didn't feel any pain, not enough so that I'd die. Both of which were quite important to me. Trust, faith, is entrusting yourself that, to Jesus that he is more competent to run your life than you are. And more competent to run your death when you die. For we will all die and face God. More competent and therefore we vacate the driver's seat of our lives in order to let Jesus in. Martin Luther, that very understated and demure German, put it like this. Faith, he said, is a living and unshakable confidence of believing the grace of God so assured that a man would die a thousand deaths for its sake. This kind of confidence in God's grace, this sort of knowledge of it, makes us high-spirited and eager in our relation with God and all mankind. Confident that God in Christ can run your life better than you can and therefore you look to him. Now, Christians have distinguished three aspects of this confidence, this faith. I need to have a way to see things. On the one hand, faith involves believing in Jesus' words. That is, accepting Jesus as your prophet. The one who speaks the truth to you. So that your mind is formed by his word above all else. Secondly then, faith is believing in Jesus' work. Trusting in Jesus as your priest your great high priest, so that your past and your future are secure. Your past in sin and failure has been atoned for. That's what priests do. They make atonement. And you're clean from your sins as you put your faith in Jesus. But also, your future is secure as you face the inevitability of your death and your high priest is still on the job. He's not gone home. He intercedes at the right hand of God for you. So faith is believing in Jesus' words as your prophet, believing in Jesus' work as your priest, and believing in Jesus' authority as your king. There are offices of our Lord Jesus Christ, prophet, priest, and king. And what it is to have faith is to entrust yourself to him as your prophet, your priest, and your king. And the Apostle Paul thanks God for these Colossian Christians' faith because faith is at the heart of receiving Christ Jesus as Lord. Notice though they're characterised by love as well, love for all the saints. If the right stance towards God is trust, then the right stance towards other people, and especially in the Bible, other Christians, is love. Not exclusively, but especially other Christians, the saints. Paul put the priority of life elsewhere like this, you may recognise it. If I speak in the tongues of mortals and of angels but do not have love, I am a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. And if I have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith so to remove mountains but do not have love, I am nothing. And if I give away all my possessions and if I hand over my body to be burned but do not have love, I gain nothing. Love is patient. Love is kind. Love is not envious or boastful or arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It is not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice in wrongdoing, 
but rejoices in the truth. It bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. It's a great vision, isn't it, of love that Paul puts before us here. Notice that love is not only a verb. Right, heard that phrase, love is a verb. Uh, it's an attempt to counteract the idea that love is some sort of mushy feeling that you have. And it's true, love is a verb, but it's not only a verb. I think what you see here of love is a heart that is open to others. Just open to other people. That will mean sometimes acting and sometimes not acting. It will mean sometimes speaking and not speaking. It will mean sometimes feeling things and not feeling things. Feeling compassion for another person. Not feeling envious. All aspects of life, our actions, our words, our emotions are caught up in this reality which is love. For love is either our character. It's about the orientational or dispositional habit of your heart. The manner in which you respond typically to people and situations and especially to people and situations that are not entitled to your liking. Notice that this is not an especially challenging thing. I think Paul puts this before us in order to say, here's an impossible standard which I'm going to just beat you with and crush you by. Paul means for you to do this. The Colossians did it. They lived lives of love. And I know many people who in great measure typify this vision of a life of love towards others here in the EU. I can tell you stories of people who in the face of severe provocation are patient. Who see the needs of other people and have responded to them with a kindness not required or expected of them and expect nothing in return. People who are supremely gifted, intelligent, beyond your imagination, receiving university honours and awards that you and I never know of, and yet who teach five-year-olds about God early on a Sunday morning, full of love in their hearts. And as Paul thanks God for the Colossians' love for their, all the saints, we need to hear the challenge. If you're a deeply self-oriented person, and I think our culture, perhaps its very greatest ability is teaching us how to be selfish. That's what our culture does to us best here in Sydney, I think. If you're a deeply self-oriented person and have learned well from your culture, then hear what the Apostle says, won't you? It doesn't matter what else is true of you. You may be a highly gifted individual, your gifts are just hollow and empty if they are without love. You may be a powerful person, but your power itself gains you nothing. You may even be committed to church and to God, where Paul says you are nothing if you are without love. This is the thing that you have to get right. Author M. Scott Peck suggests that love is a form of work. I think it's a very uh, insightful comment, actually, that love is a form of work. It's something that you need to apply your heart and your will to. He says the principal form that the work of love takes is attention. When we love another person, we give him or her our attention. We attend to that person's growth. When you work hard this week, that when you're with people, you attend it not to yourself, but to them. 
I mean, just try it. Don't, don't get me wrong. I don't want to suggest you do this for too long. It might strain. But just say for three minutes. That you pay focused attention not to how you're feeling, not to what the next clever thing you can say is, not to what you think the other person might be thinking that you are, or not whether your hair's good or not today, not whether you've said something that's dumb or clever, not the next thing that you've got to get on to, but that you pay attention to them. To them. Someone asked Mother Teresa once uh, what she saw as she walked the streets of Calcutta, where the poorest of the poor dwelt. She said, picking up on Matthew 25, I see Jesus in distressing disguise. I see Jesus in distressing disguise. Jesus said, In that you do these things for the least of my brethren, visit them in prison or take a cup of water or feed them or clothe them. In that you do it for the least of my brethren, you do it for me. What we deal with as we deal with each other is Jesus in more or less distressing disguise. The Apostle says, He thanks God for the Colossians' love. Love. Faith and love. Luther put it like this, we conclude that all that a Christian lives not in himself but in Christ and in his neighbour. Otherwise he's not a Christian. He lives in Christ through faith, in his neighbour through love. By faith he's caught up beyond himself into God. By love he descends beneath himself into his neighbour. Yet he always remains in God and in his love. Do you live in yourself? That's not how you received Christ Jesus the Lord. You live in Christ by faith and in your neighbour by love. Finally notice the Apostle identifies that these two things, their faith and their love, spring from a third thing, namely their hope. The hope that they have, which is thought up for them in heaven. It is hope which produces faith and love. You see, it's one's vision of the future that shapes the way you live in the present. How you think the future is going to go, where you think you and others are headed, is what shapes how you'll live in the present. A little while ago, the tape of Nelson Mandela's trial was discovered, uh, after which he spent 27 years in prison. Uh, He gave a final speech representing himself. I quote, I have fought against white domination. I fought against black domination. I cherish the ideal of a democratic and free society in which all persons will live together in harmony and with equal opportunities. It is an ideal for which I hope to live for and to see realised. But, my Lord, if needs be, it is an ideal for which I am prepared to die. Or perhaps what he didn't know at the time, spend nearly three decades in jail. That's a living hope, right? It's a hope which lives in him. It's a, not a bad hope, a democratic and free society in which all persons live together in harmony and with equal opportunities. That vision of the future shaped Mandela's life thoroughly, didn't it? Just as your vision of the future shapes your life now. He was clear on what his vision is. And it shaped him thoroughly. The question is, what is your vision? I mean, not, not what do you say your vision is, but what actually is your hope, your vision for the future? 
You see, the thing about the Christian hope for all things to be united under Christ, for all death and tears and disease, for every enemy of humankind to be eliminated, it's a great hope. It, it makes Mandela's hope look like nothing. But it's invisible. And the hopes that are offered to us on a daily basis are much more visible, aren't they? Have you been sucked in? The hope of fulfilment by financial security and all the toys that money can buy. The hope of fulfilment by technological security as we humans endlessly try to push back the boundaries of science desperate to avoid the stench of death touching us. The hope of fulfilment by relationships, by family and friends who keep us happy and busy. What is your hope? It's just an empirical matter. It's not something you need to dig that deeply to. You just look at what you spend your time and your energy and your money and your thoughts and your interests and your research on. Look at that. That's what you live for. That's what you hope in. Paul has heard of these Colossians and he thanks God that the hope that they have has produced in them faith in the Lord Jesus Christ and love for the saints. Is that what people hear about you? You know what it's like sometimes when you meet someone who's, you don't know them but they've heard of you? Go to Andrew Carr. What do I say? Ah, look, don't believe everything you hear. Don't believe it. Please, please don't. You want to know what people hear about that? Are you? Are we a Christian community who what they hear about us, what our reputation which precedes us is faith in the Lord Jesus Christ and love for all the saints because of the hope laid up for us in heaven. We may not in those words. But those are the things which are so transparently dominant in our lives, in your life as an individual. So when people think of you, the automatic reflex is to thank God for that faith and that love, and that hope. Notice one final thing in this paragraph. Very subtly, Paul says, this faith and love which spring from hope, this hope that they've heard about in the Gospel, is not some you know, newfangled thing, some new entry on the list of things that God is doing. Notice how Paul describes the Gospel. He says that it's bearing fruit and growing in the world. Now, if you have your biblical theology hearing aid attached and switched up, you can just about hear a very important echo. What was the first command given to the human beings uh, in the Garden of Eden, do you remember? To bear fruit and multiply, to grow. What's the command that was given repeatedly after the fall to Abram, Isaac and Jacob? Jacob later, who was called Israel, Check out these verses, Genesis 17, verse 6, Genesis 17, 6, Genesis 17, verse 20, Genesis chapter 28, verse 3, 28, 3, and 35, verse 11. It's the same command to be fruitful and grow, multiply. In other words, the responsibilities and commands that were given to humanity devolved onto Israel after the fall, Israel who was to be a blessing to all peoples of the earth, but Israel too has failed and so those same responsibilities and commands have fallen to the Gospel. Or at least to that which the Gospel proclaims, the achievement of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Now what the Apostle is saying very subtly here is that this Gospel, this mighty work of God in Christ, is not some new thing. 
It is the completion of God's project of creation. He called upon fruitfulness and growth for Adam and Eve. He called for fruitfulness and growth for Israel. Both failed. But now in Christ, there is fruitfulness and growth in the Gospel. And in verse 10, in fact, it is the Colossians who are seen as the very fulfilment of this creation mandate. Well, let's have Paul thanks God when he remembers the Colossians in prayer. How, how does he pray for them? What, what kind of form, in, in general terms, will faith, love and hope take in a Christian life? What does the Lordship of Christ look like in outline? Well, verse 9. For this reason, since the day we heard of it, we have not ceased praying for you and asking that you may be filled with the knowledge of God's will in all spiritual wisdom and understanding, so that you may lead lives worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to him as you bear fruit in every good work and as you grow in the knowledge of God. May you be made strong with all the strength that comes from his glorious power, and may you be prepared to endure everything with patience, or joyfully giving thanks to the Father. Four things the Apostle prays for the Colossians. Firstly, that they'll be filled with knowledge. Filled with knowledge. Paul is unashamedly enthusiastic about knowledge. Not of course knowledge is an end in itself. Head knowledge. Uh, he knows well enough that head knowledge puffs up. But real knowledge, deep knowledge, heart knowledge, knowledge of God's will. Now when he says knowledge of God's will, that's not simply knowledge of how to behave in any given sort of circumstance. I don't think that's what he's got in mind here at all. Rather, it's knowledge of the will of God in the sense of knowledge of the whole purpose of God in Christ. Knowledge of God's will, of what he's doing in the Gospel. And Paul says that he prays that these Colossians would be brimful of knowledge. Hear that, won't you, O highly intellectually gifted students of Sydney University. You ought to be amongst the most theologically mature and deep Christians in this country. For goodness sake, we need it. Churches are crying out for well-educated Christians. Don't be ashamed about knowledge. Have a rich intellectual and spiritual life. Secondly, notice that because of this knowledge, they will live lives, or again literally walk, worthy of the Lord. And the way they do that is by bearing fruit and growing. There it is again, you see. Bearing fruit in every good work and growing in the knowledge of God. See the spiral that's at work here. Understanding feeds holiness. Holiness deepens understanding. Knowledge and life go together. And this fruit-bearing, growing life pleases God. It really does. Not perfection. The Apostle not speaking of perfection. He knows well enough the struggle and failure of the Christian life at times. But here is a life open to us for which the Apostle prays that would genuinely please God. That when God sees you, when he turns his attention to you, when you come into his presence, he goes, yeah, great job. Good work. I love that fruit. That's terrific, that life you're leading. How do you think God does react when you, I mean, go to the story, right? Come to his presence. Mmm, cut up. Mm. Yes. 
Mm-hmm. The ambivalent, perhaps? Is that how God is with me? Well, what Paul puts before us is the possibility of a life of genuine pleasingness to God. The Colossians did it. The Thessalonians did it, actually. Paul writes that how they please God. And you too can be a pleasure to God, bearing fruit and growing in knowledge. Thirdly, quickly, Paul says uh, that he prays that they be powerful. Great power in the Christian life. Notice that what the power is for is the power to overcome and scale it. Well, no, not quite. It's the power to enable you to endure and be patient. I've been praying, in fact, this morning, I've been very affected by this uh, verse, this text, uh, this week. This morning, I've been praying for more power. I've been running a little low on power in my life recently. Too many things on, not enough power. What I need power for is precisely endurance for circumstances that are difficult and patience for people that are difficult. That's what you need power for. To endure and be patient. If you find yourself non-enduring and a little impatient, then you get that claim for power in your life. And finally, he says, even in the tough times which require endurance and patience, he prays that the Colossians would be joyfully giving thanks. It's a great mark of the Christian mature person that they give thanks by way of reflex. So they know what it is to be a Christian is to have received from God. And therefore, the reflex of the Christian heart is to give thanks to God. These four elements, know them well, knowledge of God, bearing fruit in every good work, power to cope, and a heart that overflows with thanks. These are the marks of the continuing Christian, the Christian who is deeply rooted in Christ, who is being built up in Christ, who is established in Christ. Contrast, won't you, the stagnating Christian, one who knows little of the things of God. He's made some study of the Bible and Scripture and theology, but not in any great depth. I mean, who wants all that knowledge after all? One whose life has more weeds in it, frankly, than fruit. Just lots of stuff. Oh, you're the occasional act of kindness or generosity or joy or sacrifice. Oh, yes, occasional. bit like the lemon tree I've got at home. I think once has it produced a lemon this year. It's a lemon of a lemon tree. <laughs> a life is characterised by bitching and complaining about difficult circumstances and people rather than endurance and patience. A wife for whom thanks is rarely on his or her lips. That is the stagnating Christian. Someone who has moved on from Christ, who has left Christ Jesus behind. But the Apostle says, as you've received Christ Jesus the Lord, so continue to live your lives in Him. Rooted and built up in Him and established in the faith. Just as you were taught, abounding in thanksgiving. Let's pray. Our Lord Jesus Christ, we praise you as the one who has been raised to glory. And we pray that as we have begun, so we would continue lives that are characterized profoundly by faith and hope and love. And we ask it for your glory. Amen.